series is called Under Construction, and the idea is that every single one of our lives is under construction. God's doing something in our lives, that God has a vision for our life of what it should be like, and we're short of that. Some of us are short, way short. Some of us are almost there or whatever. I mean, really with God's vision, it's so perfect and so holy. You know, we're all about as, you know, as messed up as we can be. And so the idea is that if God has a purpose for us, if God has a vision for us, can we align our lives, uh, the vision that God has birthed in us, align it with his, and so that as our lives are under construction, this construction plan begins to be completed. And the word that Christians use and is in the Bible and uh, is called sanctification. It just means set apart. It, it's, it's being able to be used by God, set apart for him, because now our lives match up uh, with what we want his to be. And so what we've been looking at is the book of Nehemiah. And what's happened in Nehemiah is God had a plan, a vision for the people, the nation of Israel. And the idea is that they would be a chosen people and that they would have this land that God called the promised land that they would live in and they'd abide by his laws and they'd uh, do what he, he, uh, he would have them do and there would be uh, uh, no poverty because he has laws to set up for all that and the land would flourish and other nations would look at what God was doing in that land and they'd say, wow, who, what is this God that you guys serve? It works. Serving God works. And so that was God's vision for the nation of Israel. But Israel didn't line their vision up with God's. And so God had to do what he often has to do in our own lives, and he had to discipline uh, that nation. And so what happened was the, uh, the Babylonians, three different waves of captives uh, were sent to Babylon. And so the, the city of Jerusalem, their capital, was devastated, and it, it wasn't looking like it was supposed to look like. And for some of us in different areas of our lives, in different areas of my life, there are areas that aren't looking the way I know God would have. And so as there were three different waves of, of Israelites leaving and going into Babylonian captivity, there were three different waves of Israelites coming back. And Nehemiah was written uh, or talks about uh, 445 B.C. when that third wave was coming back. And Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. And he hears this news from the Jews that have come back, from the Israelites who have come back. And they said, man, it's a mess over here. The city's in ruins the wall's been destroyed. The gates have been burned. And so Nehemiah has to kind of hear that and deal with it. And that's what we talked about last week is that Nehemiah just kind of dealing with this idea that things aren't the way they ought to be. And so that's kind of where we pick it up. And there's a couple different commentaries on, on, on what it means to be a cupbearer. That's where we left it last week is that uh, Uh, Nehemiah had written, now I was a cupbearer to the king. And one set of commentaries or school of thought says that the cupbearer was a nobody. He just basically was there. He was expendable. He brought the king his wine. He tasted his food. And if you showed up and you weren't happy or you didn't act the right way, he'd he'd be off with your head. Or if he just wanted to have some type of entertainment, he could just use you for that. That's one school of thought. There's another school of thought that the cupbearer was actually a a trusted advisor. 
it's believed that the king, in this school of thought, the king ate alone and uh, maybe with the queen and they would be together and the cupbearer would be there and you, as you're eating, you just enter into conversation. And so they'd have a cupbearer there that was well-educated, could articulate his thoughts well and, and would just kind of talk to the king about this kind of stuff. What we're gonna see this morning, which I'm so excited about, is the fact that it doesn't matter which school of thought it is. What we're gonna look at is what happens when God gives a vision to somebody and then life begins to take over. And how it affects Nehemiah, whether he's just a, uh, the small cupbearer who's completely expendable or whether he's a high-ranking official, it's not going to matter. And it's so freeing for us because we tend to rank ourselves in our position of what we do as well. And so if he was a high-ranking official, maybe that doesn't apply to us. Or if we're, if we're a CEO and he's just a lowly cupbearer, maybe it doesn't apply to us. But what we're going to find this morning is that uh, this section of Scripture applies to all of us. And what we're going to find is that when God gives vision, there's usually a lack of resources. There's usually uh, a lack of people who are on board. There's usually more of stuff we don't want and less of stuff we do want. And that brings attention to vision. So let's, uh, let's read in uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 and 2. In the month of Nisan, which is not the car you drive, it's just a month. It'd be like February or March or whatever. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine, this is Nehemiah writing, and gave it to him and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Now, you've got to understand what's happened. Nehemiah's heard this idea with Jerusalem. He knows the vision of God, and he's adopted the vision of God, and he knows where he is here, and he knows where he needs to be. And so what he did was he spent some time fasting and praying and weeping. And I don't know if you've known anyone or you've done it yourself. If you've fasted for a number of days, uh, it shows. <laughs> I mean, I get grumpy when I fast. And so, so, you know, Lisa can tell something's wrong, right? So your face gets drawn and you begin to lose weight and you kind of you lose energy because you don't have uh, the, the, the protein and all that kind of stuff. So he, he's fasting. I don't know if you've anyone, know, known anyone who's been crying for a few days, but that shows up as well. Your eyes are red, and you got bloodshot eyes. You got the bags under your eyes. Your eyes sting, and you want to put sunglasses on because it's too... You can tell when someone's been going through this, and this is exactly where Nehemiah was. And the next five words of Scripture are so important because where Nehemiah is, is he's feeling the full brunt of the vision. He knows where God wants. He knows what he wants, he knows where he's supposed to go, but he doesn't know how to get there. He's in Babylon right now, and he's under the king's authority. And so the scripture goes on, and it says this, I was very much afraid. See, when God bursts a vision in us, and then we get excited about the vision and we understand it. Then life happens, things happen, and there becomes a tension, a, 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 a worry, an anxiety. Uh, um, for Nehemiah, it was being afraid. And I don't know what, what vision God's planted in your heart. You might have a vision of something that we would call small, which isn't, but you just say, you know what, I need to spend more time with my family. 
God has just placed that on me. I feel it's a burden. I want to be with my family more. And so you begin to say, okay, five days a week, I'm going to have dinner with my family. And it's a vision, and God's birthed that in you. And you say, you know, this is right. This is what I'm going to do. Again, I'm just coming up with examples. And so, so you say, that's what I'm going to do. And all of a sudden, your boss comes to you and says, you know what, the next two weeks are going to be, you're going to have to really hunker down because it's going to be really packed. And then we are very much afraid because there's something standing in the way of what we, where we want God to go, and there's a tension there. Or maybe you kind of look at your life and you think, man, when I die, I want, um, if I'm a man or a woman, I want to be a man or a woman of integrity. I want someone to be able to stand up and say, man, they did what was right all the time. And so God's birthed that vision in you. And you just say, I want to be a man of integrity, a woman of integrity. And then you get to work and your boss says, hey, I need you to fudge some numbers. Or I need you to say it's shipped when you know it's out of stock. Or... I need to, uh, you need to say the check's in the mail when you know there's insufficient funds and the check hasn't even been written. And you're very much afraid because the vision's out there and you're right here and sometimes we get so focused on what's around us, we, we lose sight of what's in front of us. Or maybe you, um, maybe you're raising kids and you have a vision for your kids that you think God has birthed in you and you, you, when you imagine your kids, you see them as uh, servants of Christ and humility and that they have hearts of joy and their minds are pure and they're uh, focusing on the things of eternity, not on the things that are temporal and, and, and the world is not distracting them. And so you have this vision for them and then all of a sudden something comes up that all the other kids are doing, that all the other parents are allowing them to do and you, and you just go, man, I'm, I don't, what are they going to think? What are, what are those other parents going to think? Am I being too prudish? Am I, am, I, am I making too big a deal out of it? And you become very much afraid. You wonder, if I impose this on my kids, are the other kids just going to mock them all day? Are they going to just, and it's, it's my vision, and yet they're the ones getting the brunt of it, and so you're very much afraid in that. Or maybe you have an addiction, and God has been working on that, and you have a vision that God is birthed in you of being set free of something you're partaking in or something you're watching or something you're saying or whatever, whatever it is. And God's given you a vision of being set free and you begin to see that vision and embrace it and then all of a sudden the, your buddies call up and say, hey, we're going to the club or whatever happens or you get something in the mail or whatever and you're very much afraid because you understand that I'm gonna have to unplug this. I'm gonna have to stop this. I'm gonna have to tell those people no. Or I'm gonna have to enter into accountability and that's scary. I, I remember the first time I had an accountability partner um, and I knew what questions were going to be asked of me, and I, I didn't want to do it. I remember exactly where we were. We were at, uh, I think it was Melly's Diner. They changed it from Melly's to Nelly's or something like that. I can't remember, but I knew exact. I can tell you exactly what table I was at, and the guy sat across from me, and he opened up this sheet of paper, and he was going to ask me these questions, and I was very much afraid. As a matter of fact, every example I've given you uh, of these ideas of vision have been from personal experience your marriage, your ministry, whatever. God's birthed something in you. And yet, when life happens, and there's that time when it comes face-to-face -face with obstacles, we become afraid. Here's what I want us to see this morning and what we're going to look at uh, through Nehemiah. 
and it's on your bulletin. The tension is good. The tension is good. See, we have this vision, and we have where we are now, and things begin to happen, and the tension is good. God wants the tension. Now, he doesn't want tension for tension's sake. It's not just because it's harder that makes it better. But God wants us constantly seeing the vision, understanding the vision, seeing where we are now, seeing how short-sighted we are, seeing how little resources we have, seeing how it's not measuring up to how we thought, and he wants us on our knees to go before him. See, there's, a, there's this tension between this idea of what could be or what should be and what is and what was. There's a poem written by um, this uh, woman that I, I really have come to like. Her name's Amina Brown. And it really kind of sums up uh, this idea of tension. It says this, We don't lead from the safety of the fringe. We take up residence in the fray, where change is happening, where change is necessary. There we find ourselves in a unique tug of war between what was what is and what could be. We are faced with the reality that we are the catalyst in the moment. A tension ensues between ambitions and fears. We are tempted to bail on our goals, but discover that under pressure, our vision becomes remarkably crystallized. A hundred voices attempt to sway us, and we find we must lean into God with a faith deeper than we have ever known. We find we must lean into God with a faith deeper than we have ever known. Change happens. In the very place where many leaders flinch, fear, and fail, the tension we resist is actually by design. It tests us, tries us, it conforms us to his image. The tension is necessary. The tension makes us strong. The tension is good. Whether you're a parent that has a vision for their children a man or a woman who has a vision for their job or their neighborhood, or you're a student and you have a vision for what you could be like in your school, and you just vi- visualize yourself just sharing the gospel and being bold, there's going to come a time when something's going to happen when there's tension. And what Nehemiah does, which is so cool, when you put the verses all together, it says this, and I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, See, Nehemiah took the tension. He was very much afraid, but he was so enthralled with the vision. He understood it to be God's heart so much for his life that even though the tension was there and it draws him close to God and it begins to question and he doesn't know what's going to happen next. I mean, we don't know. Maybe he was going to die. Maybe he knew this is my one shot. I've got to articulate it just right or I don't know what to say or and the queen's there and she doesn't like me or whatever. I don't know what it is. He says, uh, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. See, he already started evangelizing to the king there. Okay, that's a joke. Okay, a bad one, but there. Okay, why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And a king said to me, what is it you want? Oftentimes that happens to us when we begin to share our vision, when we begin to kind of embrace the tension. Maybe you're a student, maybe you're single, and you have a vision for yourself of living a life of purity up until you're married. 
And, 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 and so you, you have that vision and you, that's what you want to do. God's put that in your heart and then all of a sudden you enter into a dating relationship and things start to get you know, heated up and things start to move one way or another and, and, and so your girlfriend or your boyfriend wants to take it to a level you don't know what to do and there's tension there. And you say, I'm very much afraid, but I need to tell you, I'm saving myself for marriage. And oftentimes the person says, well, what do you want to do then? Or maybe in your marriage, you're just saying, you know what, we've been focused so much on this stuff, and I just feel like we should be focused on this. And your spouse says, then what are we going to do? This is where Nehemiah is. And if the first five words we went through, I am very much, I was very much afraid. If that kind of sets the tone for what it's like to, to confront tension, to be in tension, the next eight are the answer to it. The, the next eight just takes the tension and places it exactly where it's supposed to go. It, it, it basically focuses the light on why am I going through this? The next eight words are this, then I prayed to God, to the God of heaven. And I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, I don't know, there's no, um, I don't know how much time went before he prayed to the God of heaven and he got an answer because basically the king says, what is it you want? He says, I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. So it might have been one of those prayers. I don't know if you've ever prayed it, but oh Lord, here we go. Okay, here's the deal. You know, it's like this prayer just like, dear God, help. And then you go. Or if he said, what is it you want? And Nehemiah left and, you know, said, I'll get right back to you. I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. And again, I'm glad I don't know. Because the point is, he prayed to the God of heaven. When that tension comes, it's designed to draw us to our knees to go, God, is this really what you want me doing? Is this really what I'm supposed to do? Is this really the guy who's supposed to help me? Am I really the man for this? Am I really the woman for this? Do you really want me doing this in my job? Am I really supposed to take a stand here? See, when our vision embraces reality, there's tension, and it draws us to our Heavenly Father. I so said, are my finances really supposed to be like this? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Is my marriage supposed to be like this? Am I doing all I can? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Am I the pastor I'm supposed to be? Am I the husband I'm supposed to be? Am I the father I'm supposed to be? Why is there this tension? And so we go to our Heavenly Father who's there. So cool. I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me. Now, I don't know why Nehemiah put that there. Maybe because the queen was always like, you know, just give him what he wants. You know, I don't know. I just, I don't know why he put it there, but maybe the queen was the one who, who, uh, was the clearest thinker, I don't know. But he says, the queen sitting beside me asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. See, there's a vision. I don't know what your vision is for your life, for your work, for whatever, but God's birthed this in your heart for your marriage or whatever. And, and as we begin to articulate and as we begin to go through life, there's going to be tension. And that tension is good. The tension is designed to draw us back to our Heavenly Father who birthed the vision in the first place. 
He knows all the details. Last week we talked about that he's the God of how. He tells us what, but he becomes the God of how. And so we go back to our Heavenly Father and we ask him, and then all of a sudden uh, the, the king says, okay, what is it you want? And he tells him, and he says, all right, so I set a time. You see this idea of tension, the idea of I'm on my knees and then I'm stepping out. Then I'm on my knees and I'm stepping out. Then I'm on my knees and I'm stepping out. I'll tell you where I get caught up. Oftentimes, if there's momentum going forward, I replace that moment, I replace God's presence with the momentum. I take, you know, things are going great in my marriage. So, you know, I don't need to pray for my marriage. Things are going great at the church. I don't need to pray. You know, and I only focus on the places their attention. The mature believer is doing that all the time. I, I can't wait to get to the point where things are going awesome in my life in every area and I'm fasting and praying at the same time. That's where I want to get. That's the vision that God has given me. And so he prays and then he answers and then the king says what? And he gives him a time. You know what uh, example that really works for me in the scripture on this is um, Peter walking on water. It's a famous section of scripture. We all know, we've always heard, you know, uh, you know, you've seen the bumper sticker, if you're not perfect, try walking on water, which, I don't know, just sounds so obnoxious to me, but anyway, if you have it on your car, I actually, I changed that, it's awesome, okay? So, um, but, but uh, you know, it's there, and you know, it, it's just a famous section of scripture. And so, uh, what I love about it is, here are these guys, they've been called by God, they know their calling, They've seen Jesus do 14 chapters of miracles. And, and so they're there. They're in the midst of it. It's going on. And then they're in this boat, and Jesus doesn't seem to be there. He's not there. They're in this boat, and there's waves, and there's wind, and there's turmoil. There's, there's tension there, a lot of tension. And then Jesus shows up, and uh, he's walking on the water. Now, I mean, so... Here they, focused on their surroundings, and here's Jesus walking on water. And Peter gets a vision, not a vision with angels and all this kind of stuff, but, but this idea that, you know what, you can walk on, well, I'll bet you can do that. I'll bet you can, I'll bet he can help you do that. And so they're afraid, they're, they're bailing water out, and, and, and Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's me. And Peter gets this idea, probably by the Holy Spirit, thinking, man, you know what? You can do this with Jesus. And he says, if it's you, tell me to step out on the water. And Jesus says, come. Now, I don't know what it was like for Peter. I wasn't there. But man, could you imagine? I mean, the boat's rocking, and you are trying to figure out how you're going to not fall over and get step on that water. And you do. And you begin to take one step and two steps. I don't know how many steps he took, but your vision is being realized by the power of God. And I don't know if he turned around and like, you know, yay, I'm walking on water. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have been like, you know, hey, what are you guys doing? You know, because there are 11 guys who are just sitting there. And then what happens? Tension. 
Everything's going great. He's walking on water. And all of a sudden, he begins to look around, the scriptures say, at the wind and the waves, and he begins to become afraid. I was very much afraid. And so he begins to sink. You know, we, we, um, we get down on Peter for sinking. But man, we're all sinking We've all had these experiences of spiritual highs where we, we could do anything with Jesus. And so, so Peter's got this vision of, here I am, here's Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of my faith. He's who I'm supposed to be. He's, he's it. And I want to be just like him. And you're walking and you're doing great. And then something happens and there's tension and you begin to sink. And Peter says exactly what we should all be saying. He says, Lord, save me. He says, Lord, save me. The next word is so encouraging. The next word is so encouraging. He was doing it. He was, he was performing a miracle right there with the help of his, his uh, Savior. And he begins to sing. He says, Lord, save me. And the next word is immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. He said, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? I, I don't know how Jesus said that. He could have said it like he could have been white with blonde hair and steely blue eyes and said, you of little faith. You know, like we've seen him in the things. I don't think that's how it went down. I, he wasn't white with blue eyes. I can guarantee you that. I don't know how it went down. I think he was laughing a little bit. I think he was just like, dude, you had it. You had like four steps. We could have kept going. The waves didn't hit you. I'm right here. I'm still here. Look, I haven't moved. I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of glad I don't know because in different areas of my life and at different times I cling to this story and I just go, man, Lord, thank you that immediately he reached out and he grabbed him. See, when, when God's given you a vision of your marriage, your family, your neighborhood, your school, your work, your ministry, and you begin to do it and it's happening and then tension comes, the tension is good because it draws us to God and we go, God, save me. I don't know why this is happening. And immediately, he reaches out his hand and he rescues us. I love the next verse. Because the next verse kind of puts everything into perspective. Because for me, when he saves me, I want him putting me back on the water like we had first decided, and let's go. I, uh, the vision was to walk on the water. It says, and when they climbed into the boat, now who's they? It's Peter and Jesus. See, Jesus rescues him and says, come on, he's got him by, he's, he's grabbed him, he's holding him, and he says, let's get back in the boat. We got some more ministry to do. And they head off, and guess what? They land there, and there's a bunch of Pharisees, and they're obnoxious, and guess what happens? Tension. And the tension is good, because God wants to do another work. And so the uh, disciples, he, he confronts the, the disciples, and the disciples say, man, don't you know that he was, they were offended? They're all tense. They're all freaked out. Like, man, these Pharisees, I don't, we don't know what we're going to do. And the tension is good because Jesus is in total control. And they move on, and then there's a woman who starts screaming at him and telling him, you've got to save my daughter, and she's, she's a Gentile. She shouldn't even be around. And, and the disciples tell her, you know, Get her out of here. Go away. There's too much tension. 
And Jesus says, no, the tension's good, and he begins to enter into this conversation. And that conversation are seedlings as as to why you and I have a relationship with Christ, that he was here for the Jew and the Gentile. He began to treat her with respect, and he heals her daughter. The The tension's really good. See, in the tension, you only have of couple fish and some loaves and you have to feed 5,000 people. That's the tension. Or you, your wife can't get pregnant and you're supposed to be the father of many nations. That's, that's the tension. Or you can't speak. You stutter and you're insecure and God wants you to lead his people out of Egypt. That's the tension. The tension's good. God's found in the tension. Because he'll, he'll take it, and as we submit ourselves to him and go, I don't like this, he says, I'll take care of it. I want to read a section of the psalm, because it, the psalms really, the psalms, we love the part of the psalms that are the praise you God, you're highly exalted, and all this kind of stuff. But the psalms, when we read them, they're, they're poems, and some of them are written by David, and some of them are written by other authors. But you see, in a lot of them, this thread of this tension of, of what it's like to serve the living, almighty God who sits on the throne, who's in control of everything, who births these visions in us, these ideas of where our life should be, and then reality. And I'm going to read Psalm 27, and I'm going to read the entire thing. So um, uh, see if you can see some of the tension in here. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid when evil men advance against me to devour my flesh? When my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. David's like saying, man, you know what? I know I'm going to go through this stuff, but I've got to just keep going back to my Heavenly Father. He says, one thing I do want is to just hang out in church all day and just gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. But he goes on. He says, to seek uh, Him in His temple. For the, in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says, if you seek his face, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. Let me just read what's going on here. Evil men devour my flesh. Enemies attack. Armies besiege. War breaks out. Enemies surround him. Father and mother forsake him. Desire of his foes. False witnesses rise up, and then the other side of that tension, that, man, my heart says, seek his face. 
The Lord is the light of my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He's a stronghold in my life. I just want to gaze upon his beauty. He'll keep me safe. He'll hide me in his tabernacle. He'll set me high upon a rock. My head will be exalted. I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I'll sing and make music to the Lord. You've been my helper. As the worship band returns, I... For Nehemiah, he understood what was going to happen. He understood what God wanted to do. But then came the tension. I want to read this last verse before we, um, in Psalm, before we get started. It says this, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And he gives himself this instruction in us too. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. 